think about South America and traveling around South America, there was an explorer that went around South America on his way to India. And as he went around the Cape there, he encountered a lot of storms, a very stormy place, probably like Mexico is about now with that, with that hurricane coming through, very stormy. And it threatened, the storms threatened to break up his ship. And so as he finally made it through, he, he called that place uh, the Cape of Storms. And I think as we all look at life, I think we could probably say, you know, we live a life of storms. You look at life, it's easy to see the brokenness, the sin, the evil, the disappointments, the discouragements, all what's wrong with the world, right? As you observe the world, it's easy to call it the life of storms. And as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, what you're reading is Solomon's observations of this broken life. And as we look into this book that's thousands of years old, it could have been written yesterday or even today. All you have to do is cut the news on and you see, wow, there's brokenness in the world. And, and Solomon's going to observe several aspects of this brokenness in the passage we're going to look at today, beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. And a little side note here, uh, I encourage you... Uh, to bring your Bibles every Sunday morning or open a Bible uh, because here's the reality of the situation. It's God's Word that's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not my words or the words of the world. It's God's Word. It's it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so you need to be familiar with that sword and how to wield it, you know, how to use it. And so it's important that you open the Bible or you find it on your, on your phone or an app that you may have, electronic version, that you interact with the Bible, with God's Word, because that Word doesn't change. After I'm long gone, you're long gone, this church is long gone, down a thousand years from now, if Christ hasn't returned, God's Word hasn't changed, and it's still going to be penetrating hearts. And so it's important that we, we familiarize ourselves with, with the Bible. And so as you look at the Bible... As you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 specifically, and the verses that follow, you're going to see a phrase that is repeated over and over and over again. And Solomon's going to say, I saw. I saw. I saw. I saw this. I saw that. And so he's going to let us in on what he's observing. And like I said, we see the same thing today. So let's look at what he, what he saw first in this passage. Verse 16. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of the man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see 
what will be after him. So Solomon's first observation is that there is injustice in the world. And you all know that to be true. When you turn on the, the news, or you even have specific instances in your own life where there has been injustice and justice has not been served. You've been wronged and that wrong has not been made right. There is injustice in the world. The innocent are declared guilty and the guilty are declared innocent. I heard someone say one time that Johnny Christian doesn't always score the touchdown and Paul Pagan doesn't always fumble the ball. Right? That's just not the way the world is. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean life is always going to be victorious. That you're going to get everything you want. Things are going to be smooth sailing. That's not the way it is. And it's not the way it is that the evil people or those who are against God or living their lives apart from God, that everything's going to go wrong for them. That's just not the way it is. We all experience ups and downs. And Solomon looks at the world and says, you know what? I see injustice. I see inequity. Uh, this is just the reality of the world. I heard one pastor one time say that, you know, wouldn't it be great if someone just, if they cut you off going down the road, that they get a flat tire and just have to pull off the side of the road? Or, or if someone does something wrong to you, you know, their hair turns green. Or if they lie to you, a tooth falls out. It's kind of like the Pinocchio effect. You know, you tell a lie, your nose grows. Immediate justice. And then we realize, you know what? I'd have to live in that same world. <laughs> and I don't know if I want that to happen. Right? You don't, I don't know if we all want our nose growing every time we lie or our hair turning green every time we do something wrong to someone. In other words, when, it, when, it, when we're thinking about other people, we tend to be uh, quick to say, yes, we want justice. But when we think about ourselves, we really like the idea of mercy. And so Solomon looks at the world and says there's injustice, there's inequity. You know, whether, whether, there, whether there's supposed to be righteousness, there's wickedness. But then he says, you know what? I look to God and I know God is just. And, and God is merciful. He's abounding in loving kindness. And so even though there is injustice, there is inequity, there is wickedness, evil today. And you may not see that wrong being made right in your lifetime. Solomon says, I believe that God will bring justice to the world. In other words, man is like a beast. In other words, he all, everyone dies and has to face the Lord. We all die, and we all will have to face the judgment of God. And the downside of our justice system in our own country, in any country really, is that it's difficult to get all the evidence together, right? I mean, you're trying to get all the evidence together for the trial. Sometimes it goes better than others. And then you try to discern motive. What was the motive? And that's hard to do. But see, God has the ability not only to gather all the evidence but also to determine the motive. He knows your heart. He knows what you've said. He knows what you've done. And so, you will stand before God and He will make His judgment. His judgment will be right. And He will judge the world. Every single person. And so, although His mercy endures, gives us a window to come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness for our sin, nonetheless, Everyone, there will come a time when we stand before God and He judges our lives. 
And so here's the predicament that I find myself in, and maybe you find yourself in as well. If we stand before God, we know that we're only forgiven through Jesus Christ. So when we face the judgment of God, we will not be condemned. In other words, we will be brought into His family for all eternity through faith in Jesus. And that's the only way. So if you don't have faith in Jesus, you will give an account for all your thoughts, your deeds, your actions. That's on you. If you're in Christ, Christ has paid the penalty of your sin, and you have received forgiveness, received eternal life. That's the economy of God. That's the way He has it set up. And that's the way it's going to be. But now, Christian, what do you do with the injustice in the world? I mean, we see, the, we see the wickedness, we see the injustice, we see the corruption. What do you do with it? I mean, do we just ignore it and pretend it's not there or just say, you know, there's really nothing I can do about that. God's going to handle it one day in the end, which He will. But what's our role in the meantime? It reminds me of this man who is a chain smoker. Smoked cigarettes all the time. And he began to read articles about smoking. And he's reading these articles about smoking. And he's noticing all these articles he's reading about smoking tie smoking to lung cancer. Study after study, he's reading, says if you smoke, you're prone to get lung cancer. And he keeps seeing this correlation. And it's really disturbing to him. And so he finally goes to his friend and he says, I've been reading all these studies about how smoking leads to lung cancer, I'm just going to stop reading. You're like, okay, that's probably not the best route to go. The point is, hey, stop smoking, right? And to avoid lung cancer. But the thing is, when we face injustice, corruption in the world, our tendency could be, I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to deal with it. God's going to take care of it one day. I'm just not going to get involved. But I don't think that's the way we need to react to injustice. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12 as it relates to vengeance or revenge or the justice of God. He says, verse verse 18 in Romans 12, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, that tells me, we have to have the big view that God is going to make all things right. I mean, He's the one that is going to do that. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. There will be injustice, there will be corruption that we will not be able to work out in our lifetime. So we have to have the the long view. But the short view is we need to be active in the world and in the lives of people. We need to do good. And here's what I would say I think we need to do in response to this truth. That is, we need to change what we can. We need to change what we can. We need to trust God. And we need to enjoy life. Change. You know, be disturbed by the injustice. Change what you can, but realize ultimately God is going to make all things right. And then enjoy this life He's given you. Change what you can. Trust God and enjoy life. The second thing that catches Solomon's eye is oppression. Look at 
chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was none to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So Solomon sees not only is there injustice, but there's oppression. There's a misuse of power. People are using power at the expense and gaining power at the expense of those with little to no power. Whereas the Bible teaches us to use what we have, including power, to help those with little or no power. And yet this person or these regimes or systems that are in place in Solomon's day, they are gaining power and using their power to oppress people for their own promotion. And I don't know about you, but there are a few things that really cause my blood to boil than seeing you know, someone bullied. When I see someone bullied, I just get angry, right? Because you see someone with power oppressing or using their power to hurt someone with little power. And this is one reason why one of the prayers I pray with my children occasionally is, you know, God, will you help them to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves? In other words, yes, I want them to trust you, Lord, but they need to step in and step up, and step up for the oppressed, right? And, and, and help them, help those who can't help themselves and speak up for those who will not speak for themselves. So we need to change, we need to change what we can when it comes to oppression, but it continues to happen because we live in a broken world and that pushes us to trust God and realize He will make all things right. And so what do we do about it? Well, we change what we can. We trust God and we enjoy life. It's interesting, the third observation Solomon makes is relating to our work. Because he's, he's looking around and just like if you were to do a survey maybe on Monday, you notice many people going to work and you notice many things about their work. And earlier in this book, Solomon has told us it's good for us to work. Find joy in our toil. It's a good thing. God has given us work to do. So we should work. However, work can be perverted just like everything else. And so Solomon notices two ways that work can be perverted. First of all, he says, you know, what I've noticed is some of you work because you're envious of those around you. That's your motivation in working. It's not to pay the bills or better the community. You're working hard just so you can be better than this other guy. Or this other lady. I mean, that's your motivation. To outdo this other person. That's your motivation. Envy. And so that's one misuse of work. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, does this, does this describe me? Am I, am I pouring myself out working hard, trying to climb the corporate ladder or whatever ladder it may be in order just to get ahead of this next person? The second way we pervert work is in verse 5. Verse 4, actually, let me go back to that. Solomon says, Then I saw all the toil and all skill in work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity of striving after the wind. 
Then he notices the second way in verse 15 that we pervert work. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now that sounds appetizing. You know, he folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And here's the picture. On the one hand, you have someone who just looks to work for something that it just cannot give him. Significant satisfaction. She works herself to death because she's trying to outdo everybody else. She's working out of envy to be better than whoever. Okay, so there's this overwork piece where you're trying to be the best and promote yourself. And then there's this other side where you just won't lift a finger. You won't work at all. You'll fold your hands and eat your own flesh. And here's the picture. In other words, you go in like a perpetual hibernation. You know how bears hibernate? You know, they eat a lot, they get fat, and then they go to sleep. And how do they stay alive? Well, they eat their own flesh. In other words, their body absorbs what it needs from its own body. And so there's this one picture of perversion where you're trying to squeeze something out of work that it was never meant to give. And your motivation is envy and you're trying to seek it for satisfaction, promotion of yourself and selfish reasons. And that was not meant to be used that way. And on the other hand, you just are lazy and you don't want to work at all. And your flesh, you're eating your flesh. You're withering away on the sideline when you should be working and putting your gifts to good use. And so you have these two extremes. And then Solomon tells us how we ought to approach work in verse 6. Many believe what he's saying here. When he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So what is he saying? Better is one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Many believe what he's saying here is that you need to have a rhythm of work and rest. You don't need to have two handfuls of quietness or two handfuls of work and toil. You need to have one handful of quietness and one handful of work. Work is a good thing, but you don't need to work yourself to death and overwork. And for others of you, you need to do some work. And each of us has a tendency toward one way or the other. Either we have a tendency to be lazy and not work, or we have a tendency to overwork. And what Solomon, I believe, is saying, you know, work is is all vanity if you're trying to squeeze out of it meaning and purpose and significance, because that only can be found in God. And so if you're going after that by either working hard or being lazy, it's all vanity. It's all temporal. It's all fleeting. But if you know God and your meaning is found in a relationship with God, then there's a healthy way to approach work. And you have to have this rhythm of work and rest. And then he continues to give an example of how this plays out in a life as we continue to work. One of our tendencies is if we overwork... One of our tendencies is to place possessions over people, okay? And he's observing this, that people are working for things rather than working to help people. And this is what he says in verse, eight, in verse 7 and 8. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks... For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. In other words, he's talking about Ebenezer Scrooge here. Before Charles Dickens came up with Ebenezer, Solomon was writing about him. This is a a man or a woman who works hard, accumulates possession, goes home, counts their money, goes to bed, all in isolation. 
They don't have friendships. They, they forsake relationships to possess things. And he says, you know, I see that as vanity. Because you're, you're accumulating something. Who, for who? For whom are you accumulating all these goods? It's like the man Jesus talked about. It had, had such a bountiful crop and he had it stored up in a barn. And he said to himself, you know, what should I do with all this stuff that I have? He said, I'll just build a bigger barn. And he said, well, what happens though when God calls your life to account that night? What will, what will happen to all your stuff? It'll just pass away. It's vanity. It's fleeting. It's temporary. And what Solomon's getting at is, what good is it to work so hard in isolation for yourself when these things will pass away? Why don't you work for the good of other people? Why don't you invest in relationships, in people? And that's what he's getting into in verses 9 through 12. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon sees life as a journey and there are times that you will fall down. And he says, wouldn't it be nice when you fall down if you have somebody to help you back up? Wouldn't it be nice if a robber encounters you on the street that if you have a couple other friends to deal with the robber instead of you dealing with it by yourself? It's this, this picture of a journey. And what Solomon's getting at is, yes, it's pragmatic that we need others' help. But even deeper than that, God has made us for relationships. We need God and we need other people in our lives. And yet some of us are so bent on isolation that we're accumulating things, we're pushing forward in life, and we don't have any relationships to show for it because we're investing our time in things that will pass away. You know, Ty Cobb, uh, the famous uh, Detroit baseball player, actually made his residence here in Augusta for a spell. You know, he had a, he, he just tended to alienate, alienate people with his attitude and his aggressive behavior. And at, toward the end of his life, this is what he said. He said, if I had to do it over, if I had to do it over, I'd make more friends. That's what he said. Now, I think many people would probably say that. If they get to the end of their life, they probably would say, you know, I think what I, would, what I should have done, I should have invested more time in people instead of projects or possessions, but rather people. You know, I know, um, I know this is true with my children. I think it's probably true for everybody in that you spell love T-I-M-E. You've got to invest that time if you want relationships. You've got to invest the time. And I think those of us who have strong relationships are those who put the time into those relationships. And I'm not saying you need 15,000 relationships. I'm just saying you need relationships. And people have different capacities and how, how many relationships they can have. But I, the point is, you need relationships. You need people in your life that know you, you know them, 
And if you fall in the ditch, they'll help you back up. Or if they fall in the ditch, you can help lift them up. And, you know, in our church, there, we try to provide several on-ramps to community. You know, several on-ramps for you to get into relationships with other people. One of those is Sunday school. And what that is is simply a small group Bible study. It's a time where you can get together with people, study the Bible together, pray for each other, get to know each other. It's a great on-ramp for relationships. So if you don't have strong relationships, this is a great way for you to start getting to know people. Get involved in a Sunday school class. 9.55 they meet all over the building, and that's a great way to connect with other people. Another on-ramp to uh, relationships in our church is what we call community groups. And this is something we just recently started in August. But it's just a way for us to meet outside of this building. We may meet to grab dinner in a small group together or go to an event or some exhibit or just go have some fun somewhere. But the point is to accomplish the name. It's a community group. It gets you into relationships with other people. And there are several other ways you can do this on your own, inviting people out to dinner or having them over to your house or watch a game together. But the point is, think of ways to invest time in people and not just in your job. And also, on the flip side of that, I guess you could say, you know, spend time with people instead of just watching television or being lazy or playing video games or whatever it may be, but invest in people. And so when you think about relationships, I think you need to look at your life and say, okay, based on where I am, what do I need to change? How do I need to reallocate my time uh, in order to get to know more people? So change what you can, trust God with this area of your life, and enjoy life. Then in verse 16, 13 through 16, Solomon gives another example of someone whose isolation became his downfall. Verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. And so you have this old foolish king who becomes arrogant, never takes advice. You know, it's all about him. He never talks to other people about his life. <clears throat> he becomes isolated. And this poor and wise youth overtakes him and takes on his position. But yet at the same time, Solomon just, I think, mentions this to let us know that, hey, just because you take on a position of influence or popularity, don't think that that is the the way to to gain meaning either. Because he says in verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, And there was no end of all the people of all whom he led. In other words, he became the king, this youth, and people loved him. They were all flocked around the throne, excited. His poll numbers were up, you know, favorable among the people. But then what happens? Verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. In other words, it's kind of like Joseph in Egypt. There came a generation that knew him not. Or you did something that the people didn't like and your poll numbers fell. In other words, nothing wrong with being the king, but one, don't be an arrogant king. Take advice from others. You need people in your life, even if you're the king. And two, popularity is not everything. 
You need relationships, not just popularity. And so you see the danger of arrogance and isolation here as well. So Solomon is just peering out in life and he's seeing all these broken pieces. Injustice, oppression, perversion of work, isolation, arrogance. All these broken things. It's like life is just a life of storms. Just like that explorer that went around South America said, you know, these seas are so rough. They about tore my ship to pieces. This is a cape of storms. But what you need to know is there was another explorer that came after this man that went around the Cape in South America. He experienced the same rough seas, but he renamed the Cape from the Cape of Storms to the Cape of Good Hope. Now, why did he do that? Because, yes, he dealt with the storms, but he saw the riches and jewels of India. And he said, yes, this is a cape of storms. The seas are rough. They're dangerous. But you go through these storms in order to reach the riches of India. And this is what gave this explorer, Vasco da Gama, hope. And I thought to myself as I read that, I thought, you know, if this gave him hope and this helped him see the rough seas and he was able to name it the Cape of Good Hope, even though things were rough, how much more for the followers of Jesus Christ, would we be able to say of life, even though there are storms, because we have faith in Christ, because we've experienced new life in Him, and we, are, we have our eternity secured in Him, how much more could we say, yes, this life has storms, but this is a life of good hope. This is a life of good hope because Jesus has taken on the greatest storm. The storm of God's wrath, the penalty of our sin. And so all that we need is to place our faith in Christ. And we have this new life, this new forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we have this eternal life that we can experience forever. And so yes, there will be injustice. There will be oppression. There will be issues that will not be resolved in our lifetime. But how should we respond to that? Well, I think we need to change what we can. In Christ, let's change what we can. This, this battle against sin and oppression and equity and justice. Let's, let's battle against that in a loving way. Let's change what we can, but let us trust God knowing that He'll make all things right in Christ. And then let us enjoy the life He's given us. Let's pray. Lord, we know that's easier said than done. As we leave this place... We enter into a life that many would say is a life of storms. There may be a storm brewing right out the door for many in this room. And as we walk outside, it may rain on us. Lightning may strike. Thunder may roar. But Lord, I pray that you would help us lift our eyes to eternity. Help us lift our eyes to the cross and see your son taking on the storm of your wrath on our behalf. So that we know, even though we may go through a storm, that you will bring us through, and ultimately our, our eternity is secure in Jesus Christ. Lord, give us an eternal perspective so that we can change what we can, but yet not get so frustrated and discouraged when we can't change at all. Help us to change what we can, trust you, knowing that you will bring everyone to account. You will right all the wrongs. 
And you will grant all those who are in Christ eternal life when Jesus returns. Help us to change what we can, Lord, and trust you and enjoy this life you've given us, knowing that all good things come from you. And that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.